Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Heyo. Welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Natasha Ybarra Clore, who is a Latina American who's lived partially in America and partially in Mexico. And she reached out to me after listening to my podcast, specifically about gender and transition and detransition. And she wanted to tell her story about gender dysphoria. And it's a pretty cool, raucous story. She's a, I guess, a Gen Xer, probably at the end, tail end of the Gen X generation. So we share a lot of cultural signifiers and stuff. But if you're a millennial or a Gen Zer, you won't be lost. I'm not saying that. She speaks about her life and her relationship to her body and to her sexuality and to men and to her mind. And I gleaned a lot of wisdom out of this, which is pretty cool. So, you know, we're Gen X, you might be a boomer or millennial or the silent generation, if you guys are still around and listening to podcasts or whatever's coming after Gen Z, you might be those things. But the cool thing I can tell you is that as we age out of our youth, we gain something uh, to make up for all the verve and nativity that we're losing. And Natasha's got a lot to share. I really enjoyed this conversation. This is a very human discussion with a lot of gems. So without further ado, here is Natasha Yabara Clore. Our Twitter discussion, which was the original discussion, got deleted somehow. So I have no idea what we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, um, one night I was listening to your podcast and um, at night before I go to sleep, which is when I listen to podcasts. And I just, it, I, you were talking to, I believe, a detransitioner. And I just thought, you know, I think I might have something to contribute to this conversation hmm. um, with c my own experiences with gender dysphoria um, from just a different perspective. I thought I'm going to reach out to, to him to see if he's interested in, um, in talking to me about this because maybe I can, you know, add to the conversation in some way. Cool. That's ground that I'm not completely lost with then. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess, so I'm going to, I used to be a very opinionated, slightly online person. And a couple of years ago, I decided to get rid of all, almost all of my social media. I just kept my Instagram, which, um, where I don't post any type of like, um, uh, political content or just any ideas at all. It's just generally, um, you know, whatever Instagram stuff. Um, and I deleted my Twitter, which I, I wasn't really, I, I was meaning to suspend it temporarily. And then I forgot to reactivate it. And after 60 days, it's gone. Hmm. Um, so, um, so I've kept quiet basically 
because I've been in fear of uh, repercussion, professional repercussions of kind of talking about my own experience because it's not, I basically, I think the best way to put this is to say that I found a way to like overcome gender dysphoria. Um, from it being, you know, extremely prominent within my life from a very early age to uh, just having it be something that's very, you know, that appears in my life very minimally. So that's, I'm writing a book about it and I figured that we could have a conversation about it and maybe someone looking for conversations about this could find this and maybe find another option into mm -hmm. how, how to cope with what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. How is your book structured? So basically, it's my journey from going from uh, believing myself to be crazy. Uh, in 2013, I was, you know, I'd been at that point, I'd been basically partying for 15 years. Um, I was tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was I had been diagnosed as bipolar and general anxiety disorder. And I was taking six def six different psychiatric medicines. So I was like on antipsychotics, antidepressants, you know, stuff for anxiety, you know, adult Ritalin, everything, um, along with my regular dosage of MDMA, cocaine, and alcohol just on for fun. Um, and I was just, you know, in a place where I was like absolutely miserable with myself and my life. And then six years later... I've kind of come to the conclusion that I'm good. I'm fine. I didn't need any of it. I wasn't crazy. And that a lot of what was going on was, you know, in my head and being able to deal with my head has allowed me to, has liberated me from, from a lot of it, including uh, gender dysphoria, which was, I mean, literally, I think some of my first childhood memories are tied to, you know, not wear, not wanting to wear a dress and being forced to wear a dress um, mm. and that having such significance throughout my life. Really? W what did the uh, dress signify? Was it a feeling of just being in the dress or was it the cultural significance of the dress? Like when you, you go know, way was, back into those memories. Yeah, I you? was three years old. So I, 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 I think about this a lot because I'm not exactly sure what it meant because I don't know how aware I was. I mean, I think we have a tendency to underestimate how aware we are in those early years. I was uh, very, you know, I started speaking at nine months old in full sentences. So clearly I was very aware of my surroundings. Um, I lived a, you know, a, a very complex reality back in those days. Um, and so I think maybe I knew enough to say, I don't want to be like mom. I'd rather be like dad. Um, and that would probably be my, my reference. There might be something else to it. I mean, shit, if you ask my, my, uh, therapist who does like past life regressions and stuff, he's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe you were a male in the past, in your past life. Um, I don't know my mom, the way my mom tells it, my mom says that, um, and this is so funny because the other day my mom was filling out a form for me. And she filled out non-binary. 
And she sends it to me and I'm like, no, but the, she's like, oh, I just figured that that's how you identify it. And I'm like, no, no, no. I identify as a woman. I'm female. But she said that ever since I was a tiny little baby, like months old, that she knew that there was something different about me mm-hmm. and that my the way that I interacted with the world and my gestures and the way that I moved was more masculine than what she would expect from a female child. Hmm. And how did the uh, gender dysphoria persist or grow or change as you developed, as you persisted and grew and changed? So it became obviously more intense as I moved towards puberty and the differences between um, myself and boys became more obvious. The more my body became markedly gendered, um, you know, I'm a Latino female, uh, you know, of Spanish descent, which means, you know, hips and boobs. I've, I've got a very uh, curvaceous body. I'm very much what, you know, what, what, what we would say in, in, in Latin America, we say that I have the type of body that's good for, for birthing babies, right? Mm, mm, Those mm. big hips. And as, and when my body went from, you know, being able to kind of pass more as, androgynous into like a terrain where it's really hard to be androgynous when you're thick, when you're this round and and curvaceous. Um, That was the most horrible part. But, Hmm. you know, all of elementary school, I just, I, I think I was thinking the other day that I think the emotion that most, that, that, that I would categorize as like characterize, sorry, as the most important or most prevalent emotion was um, envy. I felt I felt so much envy of boys. Like I felt like boys had the had freedom, had a freedom that I didn't have. And I I'm not I don't I didn't have a tra- a very traditional upbringing. My mom always defends herself saying, "I only asked you to wear dresses twice a year, you know, on like on Easter and Christmas." Um, but but I just, you know, they seemed to be so free of things that I felt were weighing me down. Hmm. Um, like and so uh, I always self-perception, uh, responsibility to being eventually, you know, pressured into be a mother or what was, no, the, the no, I don't didn't think have to deal it, with. it didn't go that far. I mean, no, I think it was more like, I mean, I'm talking six years old, first grade. I think it's just like, yeah, yeah I think, uh, confidence. I felt like boys had like an innate confidence Hmm. Uh, which obviously now that I've known many men, I know that's (laughs) not true, but, um, and I felt like they were free of a lot of the emotional burden. I felt like a lot of my sensitivity was tied to my, to my femaleness. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. So sensitivity is in perception of what's going on or uh, like an empathy, like a connection, uh, Yeah, but I think, the depth of the emotion, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, it's sad. I mean, I, I think, uh, thinking back on my childhood, I think the most like, I, I, w- I feel like that was probably the only period in my life where I've actually been depressed. I'm not a depressive person. I'm just, I'm generally like anxious, but upbeat. Um, but I think during childhood, especially heading into puberty, I, I was just very sad. And I felt like this sadness was somehow female. I, I, I don't know what the law, because I didn't really give it too much thought back then, you know, and we're talking about the 90s. So th- yeah. it wasn't like everybody was talking about this shit, you know, yeah. but um, 
But there was definitely this notion like boys felt less and I would have loved to be able to feel less. Okay. Yeah. Did you, were you able to find anybody to speak to about this or was this just going on internally? It was, yeah, I think it was mostly internal. I don't think that, um, I was, I've up until very recently, I was very defensive of it. So if it was ever brought up, it somehow ended up being, you know, tied into my homosexuality, right? So I'm married to a woman and I guess I'm, I'm a lesbian. So, and so whenever the issue around gender and sexuality were somehow questioned, I was like, oh, we don't go there. We don't question these things. We're not, I do, I do what I feel like a lot of people are doing now, like shutting down the conversation when it comes close to those subjects. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I. I would spend, I I have like these memories of waking up really early in the morning with the kind of this, like this anxiety that I guess is called, I mean, at least in Spanish, you'll forgive me. I'm like translating in my head, but, um, terminal insomnia, which is the insomnia that wakes you up in the mornings where you've got anxiety. And so you can't continue sleeping and you're up before everyone else, which makes, you know, creates more anxiety. And so I'd be awake. What's the Spanish word for that? insomnio terminal so terminal insomnia with coming from that it's at the happening at the end of the sleep cycle rather than at the beginning it's not that you have difficulty falling asleep it's that you have difficulties not remaining asleep um and i would and i you know i I would self-profess like atheist from you know second grade on and i would lay down shirtless and i had like breasts that were starting to grow Already, but when I was shirtless, I could feel like it, they look like pecs. Yeah. So I would imagine myself having pecs rather than breasts, and and pray to God that they wouldn't continue growing. Like to this yeah. God that I would otherwise say didn't exist. Yeah, I was so desperate I would literally be praying to God, like, please, God, help me so that these breasts don't continue to grow. Mm. It's, you that were seven, and you were already developing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another, that's, I guess that's probably another part of the issue, but I mean, which is also really common in a lot of women nowadays, they say it's the hormones in the milk or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And do feel free to just throw in the Spanish and then translate a word here and there. I would love to have that color on the channel. So I'm just giving you free reign (laughs) to do that. Give a little extra lingual uh, spice. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. What happened when you when you discovered reading and books? It seems like you're incredibly intelligent. Did what what around the time when you started read did you end up like finding books, finding fiction, finding characters, finding that realm yeah. to help you that, to start to conceptualize with what's going on in you? A, a very a very predictable, right? <laughs> so yeah, I became I, and it's funny because, you know, I was obsessed with the babysitters club. Like I read very, the, what I was into, the fiction I was into was very like feminine. Yeah. Um, I read a lot. I didn't really have friends. I was very shy. Um, and, and so I spent, you know, most of my time just reading. Um, but still, I mean, I, I think there was this thing that happened after puberty because, puberty comes around and I go from being like just weird and frumpy, at least in my perception of myself to developing a like desirable female body. And then it like, 
the dysphoria, it doesn't go away, but it adapts somehow in, in that I adopt, I adopt a persona where I'm like, I started doing my makeup, growing my hair out. Like I started to, I stopped being so concerned with appearing um, masculine, even because I wanted to fit in probably. And because it, I, it brought me male attention and, you know, there's always a sense of like powerful, you feel powerful when, you know, when, when boys start liking you. Um, but that, that kind of like, it's, it, it sent me in, in another direction completely. And, and until I was like in my mid teens, after I'd experienced kind of like the negative aspects of banking too much on male attention, um, I, 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 it, I went back into like a more masculine persona and, you know, shaved my head and started, um, developing into this, like the butch lesbian, I would say. Mm-hmm. Could we, could we explore that arc of male attention? I've, so you're Latina and yeah. the, your culture and even even in America, Latino America, uh, you guys have a different relationship to sensuality, to sexuality, and to gender than us uh, Anglo-Saxon people. Yeah. We have this kind of uh, Protestant thing um, where it gets really uh, – our sexuality is really suppressed and then really – it goes in this really weird thing. You Black guys and are, white always. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's there's uh, there's more comfort in that just from my perception and my experience in so in the gender dysphoria conversations I've had with, uh, I guess, Anglo-Saxon or Protestant-ish, uh, you, know, you know, there's no longer religion because we Protestanted that away. But uh, that kind of culture uh, um, with the young females, they – when they – several stories that I've had when the young woman notices the male attention, like there's this – there's this reaction to it. There's this fear to it. How do, how was that for you when you noticed it? And, uh, and what, what, what was it? And, and how did you go through shaping that? And then what was that kind of uh, experience of uh, banking too much on it, as you say? It's, it's actually pretty interesting because I moved from the United States. So I grew up in, in Northern California in San Jose. So oh. um yeah, you're from. Are you from California? Yeah, I was in there when I was like five and six, uh, but I'm, yeah. I grew up a lot in Sacramento. So I, so I, I lived in Northern California from um, from four to to twelve, and at twelve I moved to Mexico. And at twelve, I literally, I remember this. Uh, there's this moment in my summer right before moving to Mexico. And I just graduated the sixth grade and myself and my friends, we had gone to great America, which was this theme park. Don't know if it's still around. Um, but we're walking and I'm like, you know, I'm wearing my, my Dickies and my Adidas. And I was feeling like this was the first time that my mom had let me go shopping for my own clothes for real. Mm. So I was like, this is, I felt really good about myself and this really hot guy goes walking past me and he checks me out. And this is the first time I'm ever checked out by a guy. And it was just this rush of, of, of sensation and feelings. I think it was, it was very empowering. It kind of like, I, I feel like that was a moment that I decided, okay, now I'm a woman. I don't know that it was true. Well, definitely I know now that it wasn't true that I was still a girl, but I was like, okay, 
now I'm a woman and this and what follows. And then I moved to Mexico. And you're right. And the thing is, yeah, Latino culture in the United States, uh, Latinx culture, uh, um, there's definitely an aspect of that um, of that more uh, living in the gray Catholic thing where we're like, yeah, we can sin because we, you know, we're, it's, we're easily forgiven, you know? So we we're, 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 our morals are a lot more lax than Puritans, but it's mm -hmm. no, but it's still in the context of the United States. So it's nowhere near as relaxed as it is in Mexico. And so I arrive in Mexico in to this world that is like, you know, Kids in the seventh grade, it was like the normal thing was that everybody was paired up. The boy, everybody was boyfriend and girlfriend. They'd been having relationships ever since the fourth or third grade. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody was making out. There wasn't this push to have sex like in the United States. I think in the United States as a teenager, there was like this whole thing of like, you have to lose your virginity and you have to have sex. In Mexico, you know, still Catholics. So it's like, nah, sex wasn't the priority. But there was a lot around um, building relationships. Like we did a lot of playing adult at, in, in as, as we, when we were little. And gender roles are significantly, or at least in the 90s, they were definitely a lot more, um, they were more marked. So for me, the best way to describe this is at school in the United States, if you looked at the playground, there were girls and boys playing sports right? And girls and boys talking, but everybody, it was all mixed, almost in equal proportion, more of the boys playing sports, but it, okay. My school in Mexico, you looked at the playground and it was boys playing sports and girls sitting on the sidelines, cheering the boys on and gossiping. Mm -hmm. It was like, I've, I don't think I ever in the three years that I was at an American middle, middle school, which is the, you know, the last time there was sports in my life. I don't think I ever saw a girl play uh, soccer, which is what everyone played ever. Hmm. So, so, you know, I come to this place where like men are a certain way where they're a lot more open and expressing things where I could be walking down the street at a, as a 12, 13 year old and be catcalled by a 50 year old, which is, you know, I, God damn it. I'm from Northern California. Like there's nothing further from my experience than this. Yeah. And, and where boys are feel a lot more entitled to, to women than, than American men. You know, I always talk about how I grew up there during the Clinton era and the conversations about sex that were being had. We started talking about consent and all this yeah. stuff. And in Mexico, it was like, you know, in Mexico, women are taught to say no to sex, but saying no to sex is part of being desirable. The men are going to take it anyway. So, so it's, it, it's, you say no and they know to push. So a woman's no never actually means no. It always means yes, but I can't admit it. Oh. And which, hmm. which presents a, a completely different dynamic, completely yeah. different dynamic. Yeah. 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 Did, was there, um, how significant, let's say, was the culture shock uh, being 12 and going from Northern California to Mexico? I mean, I don't think at the time I didn't want to accept it because I just wanted to be accepted as Mexican yeah. and fit in, especially coming from the experience of not being fully accepted as American. I think I was really? literally just talking about this with my um, with my therapist this morning because we were talking about, you know, 
I, in the United States, I was always Mexican. I was, you're always too Mexican for um, being American. And in Mexico, I'm always too American to be Mexican. So to, Hmm. so to this day, the culture shock is still a thing. (laughs) Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, 38 year old woman and I you know I still have a hard time navigating um these cultural differences to this day and especially like setting boundaries because I'm fearful that if I do set boundaries I'll be judged as too uptight you know when for example I don't know the the silly examples I had a, a, a small party with some high school friends on Friday and I asked everyone to come at seven and I would have been very happy had they left at 132 but in Mexico to put an end hour on a party is considered like you know ridiculous like an American thing to do Buzz like kill, uptight and yeah. boring yeah so I, you know in order for me to get people out of my house because i I really uh, like to sleep. I had to do all types of things, and still, I I, I feared that I came off as 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 uptight. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's still, I mean, it's still to this to this day really hard to navigate. But particularly in those years, I mean, and it's not just sex. I mean, the way people drink down here is very different to the way people drink in the United States. What do you mean? Socially accepted at a very yeah. young age. But when you come from, you know, from the culture of being told not until you're 21, not until you're 21, and yeah. you, then you suddenly you're 12 and your parents serve you a beer, you're like, what the, you know, sm- smoking cigarettes is socially accepted. And I, I never knew how to set boundaries. And so, like, you know, I'm like, fuck yeah. And so I smoked for 25 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and, mm-hmm. and to this day, I drink, you know, a, a significant amount. But um, when probably, I don't know, but probably I'd grown up in the United States, I might have, it might have not been, you know, smoking and cigarettes in a context where I was safe, but rather hard drugs in a context where I was unsafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are certain trade-offs that we are not good at navigating. That hybridity of culture, um, that's a really rich field uh, to ponder and to explore where you're, well, uh, too Mexican, too American. And so you're just kind of this like a griffin or something like you have a head of the lion and and the body of a, you know, rhinoceros or something like that. And you're like, where do I fit in uh, between all the different tribes? How did the gender dysphoria or that gender, the tension between you and your body uh, change when you went from the American context to the Mexican context and then go into like puberty, puberty, puberty. Yeah. So initially when I got here, I was, I was, um, like I said, you know, I was turning, I was 13. I, I felt I started to feel good about myself and my body. I got a lot of, it was ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how, even how to explain it because one day I'm like, you know, I forget my jacket in like the chemistry lab and I go downstairs and this is a couple months into, into, into moving to Mexico. And there's this group of boys and they're all smelling my jacket. And I'm like, but you know, I, I, my notion of myself was still that I was the girl who had no friends and locked herself in the bathroom during, during uh, lunch break because I didn't want people to see me alone and think, oh, she's alone or she's horrible. And so I, that was the notion of myself. And then I come into this, into this classroom and all these boys are like apparently in love with me and smelling my jacket because I apparently smelled really good. And, you know, which is so far from any understanding of myself that I'd ever had. And then shit like this happens where like there's a list going around of the hottest girls in school and I'm on it. 
And I'm like, literally a chubby girl, you know, weird, eight ants, you know, never, ever thought that this would be a place that I'd be in. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Um, and so I went, you know, I learned to do my makeup and I started even considering, considering wearing heels because I never actually did. Um, I started to, I started to, um, to feminize myself, to make myself more attractive to, um, to men. And Mm -hmm. then I experienced, and I think this is probably a common, uh, theme in, in a lot of, of, and at least what I read, um, in a lot of experiences of women who have these issues around gender, I experienced a lot of male violence Mm -hmm. because it was, it was also, it was a combination of, of me putting myself out there and like trying hard to be desirable, but at the same time, not being the type of woman that a Mexican woman is expected to be. Mexican women are supposed to be quiet and subservient. And I was raised again in Northern California by a Democrat feminist mother who was like, you know, go out there and, and speak your truth. And so I was out there speaking my truth and I was punished for it. And the way this manifested was through yeah. sexual violence and, and, and through physical violence as well. Mm. Um, and then, you know, and then I, I have a very, there's one experience that was just like, I think it kind of, it's the, like the epitome of Mexicanness in the sense that like, I went out with some friends to this party. Um, I very ridiculously liberal parents or potentially slightly disinterested in parenting and therefore I had you know 14 years old no curfew and we were like we're gonna spend the weekend in this abandoned house and so it was me another girlfriend and four boys you know and lots of alcohol and the oldest person is probably 17 and at some point in the night uh two of the boys start fighting over me and they start fighting to the point that they draw blood and there's, you know, shards of glass flying everywhere because one of them breaks a window. So one of the other boys says, no, come here. I'm going to protect you. I'll be your protector. And I'm like, I trust him. I'm like, yeah, protect me. And then he sexually abuses me. And this is like, <laughs> this was like, oh, Jesus. Like if my relationship to men, because my father um, left the, you know, I already had a complicated relationship with men. My father, um, I don't want to say abandoned us, but I guess that's what you say. But he couldn't deal with being a father at the at the time that he that we were children. Um, and then you know, I had I had stepfathers, so I already had a slightly complicated relationship to men. I had this like envy, all this, all these mm-hmm. mixed feelings of wanting to be a man but not being one, and therefore being angry with men. Then you add on this layer of all of these situations that I lived through, um, in part put myself through, in part, you know, was a victim of. Um, It just, so at, you know, 14, 15, I like shaved my head and I said, fuck men. And I think, I think a little while, a a moment ago, I was telling you, I'm like, I think I'm a, you know, I'm a lesbian. And I kind of said it with air quotes, which I know is kind of weird but no i mean i say i'm a lesbian because i am so culturally in the sense that i've dated women primarily for the last 25 years and i'm married to a woman but i've you know i'm undoubtedly bisexual i just have a very complicated relationship with men and illness yeah how did that um and i asked this uh because this is a public conversation how what were the tools and the methods of just digesting processing uh, that uh, 
I don't, I, trauma's overused, but it seems like there's some pretty negative things that were coming to you from men. How did you process that? Maybe the the going radically butch was part of that processing, but there's a, seems like you're you're absorbing a lot of pain. What do you do with that pain? I think How do you yeah, it's. That? I mean, I don't think I, I consciously processed it in any way, shape, or form because once I adopted the I'm gay and I was born this way narrative, oh. then there was no possibility of questioning whether trauma played any part in terms of my relationship to men because okay. that would be questioning whether I was born this way or not. And that, you know, again, again, it was like shutting down that conversation. It's not until much later, I mean, six or seven years ago that I'm like, eh, you know, Maybe I could, maybe when the therapist asks, can we talk about why you are attracted to women? I could be like, all right, let's talk about it. And mm -hmm. I'm allowing that to be a conversation. How I processed it unconsciously and just is literally, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm a television writer and the other, the other day, not the other day, but when we had writers rooms in person, I was with the, my writers and I was, and it, we were writing a show about teenagers. And so we were reflecting a lot on adolescence and I was looking back at my adolescence. And so were a couple of the people in the room and we realized that all of the, the people who were around me who had more tattoos, we were the most fucked up ones. I mean, we literally were mm -hmm. the ones who had had the most difficult, um, childhoods and adolescences. So these were like um, like the um, inked manifestations of our internal scars. Hmm. So I think I did go to the uh, being like very, um, very butch because it became a way to protect myself. Mm -hmm. Me, and, yeah. if I no longer looked the part of prey, then I could be, you know, predator. Yeah. And so I, that's the direction that I headed and I would, and I, and, and I kind of installed myself in that place. I mean, you know, this, this hair growth is literally the first time that I let my hair grow out in, 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 in 25 years. Mm -hmm. The, you bring up uh, writing for television and, and trying to write, I guess, a teen drama of some sort. What we're looking at right now, thanks to social media, is this thing called identity. Uh, you know, there's there's different versions of identity politics that have been going through American, at least you know, North American politics for ages and ages and ages. But once with the advent of Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, seems like uh, especially young people are seeing themselves first and foremost as identities. And so they... You know, there there are conversations now that I've heard from parents of their ten year olds discussing with other ten year olds on Zoom after the class is over what their sexuality is. You know, and they have all these you know like this smorgasbord of sexualities. You get to pick your own you know your own lipstick. You know, I'm a I'm a demi semi you know uh, non binary wayfish uh, sexual yeah. or whatever. You know, but thinking back on at the period in history where you shaved your head. You're a teenager. What is this? Late nineties now. Late nineties, yeah. Yeah. What was the lesbian identity for you, and what was that? What was that culture like for you? And did you find a place where you could be you or fit in uh, with minimal uh, adaptations, or what was that like? Uh, another interesting uh, thing made more interesting by the by the culture, but yeah. So 
I think I actually unwittingly um, brought a lot of identity politics to Mexico. Uh, it wasn't a thing, but it was it's already a thing fault. in my world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did this. Um, now it's it's a thing. And it's actually, it's it's really interesting because in the last, I would say, six years, well, definitely since 2016, I have seen an increase in um, the use of English in even my friends in that they've imported a lot of these, you know, woke words, um, into, into the way they speak. But back then, I mean, back then the thing is that like, I'm like, you know, 14 years old. I'm like, okay, I'm a lesbian. I decide this, or it comes to me as something that, uh, that is true at, in, while I'm in California visiting my mom, um, one summer, and after, you know, going to the public library and in hiding, looking for books and finding queer theory, being, you know, queerness was an idea that was, it was the only thing that was there. Like if you went into Barnes and Noble and you looked for, for books about being gay um, in the 1990s, you know, you were going to find books that presented queer theory um, and queerness as like, that's who you are and what you are. And, and your sexual um, identity, well, your sexual orientation as a, the singularly most important part of your identity. Um, so I take this back, I bring this back to Mexico First of all, I start identifying as queer at that age in 1999 when everybody's like, what the fuck does that mean? Oh, right? so at least in Mexico. You were, you, before it was known, you're, you're, you're the cool queer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and then there's really the butch culture. It wasn't a thing here. So most lesbians were more masculine than heterosexual women, undoubtedly, but not to the point that they would cut their hair, you know, like there and people, lesbians did not wear their hair short when, because you were trying to pass this straight, which I don't know exactly what that means because now I've got my hair long and people still think I'm a lesbian. So, um, but, but, and there wasn't a lot, there was, I think there were some lesbians who were more outstanding in the culture, but most of them were like old feminists and boring. I adopted gay male culture from the start. When I was 15 years old, I went to the first for my first night out at a gay club, and from 15 to like 22 or 21, when I was too deep into the art scene for the gay club scene to be cool anymore, um, I literally spent every Friday and Saturday night at gay clubs, living the queer as folk lifestyle. Um, you know, what cocaine. Is that? Oh, okay, so pretty <laughs> cocaine, cocaine, uh, drugs, and you know, and have trying to have as much sex as possible because just really adopting gay gay male culture but um because there wasn't there wasn't really much because feminism could kind of absorbed lesbians and feminists would like like to sit around and play guitar and i wanted to you know party and have sex not sit around and play guitar yeah there's a crunchy lesbianism but you wanted the party lesbianism i wanted and, the, which which is which is the lesbianism that's now in vogue, but that's what everybody wants. I mean, hmm. I've seen how lesbian culture has become basically inseparable from and, and from from gay male culture to the point that we're talking about tops and bottoms in lesbianism when before that literally, you know, it wasn't a thing because like we have no penises. 
So why are we talking about who you penetrates still have bottoms, who? Of, though. Yeah, exactly. But we both have bottoms and we both, have, you know, we could both <laughs> penetrate each other. Why right? talk yeah. about just one penetrating the other? So, um, so yeah, hmm. yeah, I, I was part of that, uh, not the first, but definitely part of that wave of like, of bring of exporting queer LGBT American culture into Mexico. And, and it's gotten to the point now where like, I, you know, it's basically the same thing. There's not, not much of a difference between them. Okay. It's, it's pretty, would, would homogenous be even a correct word or, or I guess similar or yeah. Interesting. I mean, it, it, I, I, I sort of, right at this moment, I'm not exactly comfortable using this term because it's so overused, but the U S has colonized Mexico in the most unsuspecting ways. Like everybody was scared that there'd be a McDonald's on every corner. There is a McDonald's on every corner. That doesn't change how many kids other people eat a day. Like Mexican culture is very resilient. It's a, it's, it's even for immigrants who come here, it's extremely hard to assimilate because we're so, we don't open up. We're not like, Ooh, we can do Mexican hyphen something else. It's like, no, it's Mexican. And you just have to be exactly like us for us to accept you. But, uh, but through social media, um, and, 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 uh, and through identity politics, basically a, a lot of, uh, you could hear, you could hear a person in Mexico talk about racism, talk about homophobia, talk about transphobia, and it's going to be the exact same discourse as yeah. a person from the U S in spite of the fact that the circumstances are completely different and they are. Yeah. 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 That, that, uh, great wokening, that, that virus, that mind virus, and, and there are positives to it and there's a lot of valid aspects to it, but the way that it has just the language itself and the ways of thinking, and I don't know to what extent the policing of the language uh, follows it around, but it's just such a weird export that I'm not really necessarily proud of that that yeah. export of America. Like uh, I was fine when we were just shipping blue jeans everywhere. Exactly. Uh, McDonald's, I guess you know. McDonald's. Fine, I mean, McDonald's <laughs> was fine, but yeah, I mean, I was just reading something right now about uh, some kids at the at the at the national dance school. I I I went to art school basically from high school on, um, uh, into college and and in grad hmm. school. So I know what they're talking about, and I lived in and in art school there's always like eh, it's very easy for boundaries to be like everything is really wishy-washy between professors and students and so there's a tendency for there to be like abuse of power and whatnot but yeah. it was like their complaint against one of the professors was um that he shared uh, misogynistic memes and i'm like you know that yeah, how is that violence you know how is what he what he shares um, and that, that's just very puritanical. That's very yeah. gringo, um, you mm-hmm. know, moral panic type of shit that, that mm-hmm. in Mexico, um, it was just not common. But I, I mean, even four or five years ago, I mean, four years ago, I was, you know, I remember having conversations with friends of mine where I like, why don't Mexicans define themselves ideologically? Like the left and the right here was still something that was kind of like, ah. and then it means different things because in the United States, it's primarily on social issues. Here, it's definitely about economic issues. So our president, who 
you know, if you look at it from the economic perspective, is most definitely a leftist, right? So our president, Lopez Obrador, is such a leftist that everybody, you know, is scared of him and compares him to Chavez and scared of Mexico turning into Venezuela or whatever. But socially, he's very conservative because he's a Christian. So he's like, you know, against abortion and gay marriage. And that for me, as an American coming into Mexico, was like mind blowing. How could these things coexist? You know, you're either all of these things or all of these things, and you have to be black and white, and that's it. And I would push people to define themselves. Like, what side do you stand on? Hmm. And not, being really unable to see like the gray, and then you know, I matured. Oh, what? <laughs> I grew up. I grew up, and then I grew up, and I realized. Oh, that, matured. Know, okay, yeah. Yeah, living in the gray is is, is a lot more enriching. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. How did um, how did your relationship just to your physical body change in the uh, going into the butch phase and then kind of just becoming an adult, like the the gender dysphoria and then relationship to, I, to your feminine? I started and your to. I think I started to. The main thing I did was kind of like forget that I had a body. Oh, I, thank, I no thank longer, you, cocaine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I no longer thought of myself. I mean, it, and so I was still obviously, you know, living in this body and like using this body for to look to, to consume the cocaine and whatnot, but, um, and to have the sex, but, um, but it wasn't until about four years ago, three years ago when I was, I was swimming cause I, I a friend of mine passed away um, very young. And I got into this whole idea of like, holy shit, I think we've done too, too many drugs. I think we might've gone overboard and we're like in our thirties and we're going to start dying. So I was like, I'm going to do sports now, you know, exercise. And so I started working out and I started swimming and I'm swimming and I'm thinking, what do I look like? Hmm. What do I look like when I swim? And I realize that most of the time when I envision myself, I envision myself in a male body or in an androgynous body. And I'm like, why do I do that? And rather than, I think here's where a lot of people could, you know, easily decide, okay, well, when I close my eyes, I imagine, you know, particularly, I think sex is a moment where this happens to a lot of people, at least that I've spoken to. When I close my eyes, I envision myself in a body that is of this or that has these characteristics or is of the other sex. Um, you could go, okay, well, then that means that I'm of the other sex. My wife, who is incredible, pushed me in the other direction. And she was like, okay, why do you not want to see the body that you actually have? Mm. Like, what what defense mechanism, how, how did, why did you develop this defense mechanism of seeing yourself in a body that is not the body that you have? Mm. And um, And I started to look into it, and that brought me to where I am fundamentally that was like the most the most important shift in paradigm but hmm. but for 20 years i literally just i i i i had no and i think that's why it was so easy for me to hurt my body because my body didn't exist so that's why it was okay for me to do things that i now see you know that to put myself in situations of 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 um where I was, you know, creating pain, physical pain, in fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just literally the the if I close my eyes, the body that I saw was just the body of a man. Not that I had a penis or anything, but it was just like yeah. very abstract. But it was it was most definitely not 
the body of a woman with hips and boobs, you know, most definitely mm-hmm. not that. And how did, how did recognizing that, what, what, what were the steps to kind of uh, create harmony uh, with your body? It gets a little esoteric, but so Great. I, <laughs> so I, I, I start looking at, um, back in 2013, I have this diagnosis, right? They say I'm bipolar and I'm like, I'm on all these drugs that just don't allow me to function. And like I said, I'm a writer. I'm trying to write a movie. I'm just, it's not coming out. I don't know how to go about this. And I start going online and I start finding some communities where they start talking about neurodiversity. I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. I didn't stay there. I mean, I'm far from that concept now, but I, it sounds interesting to me to think of me being bipolar as not necessarily me being sick, but just rather me being perhaps more sensitive, more emotional, blah, blah, blah. And so I somehow come upon a post from someone, and this is probably Reddit or wherever, and I see that they're, that they're talking about how they've managed to create a connection between their menstrual cycle and their emotional cycles, right? And so and I did this horribly because I'm not a a very disciplined person, but I was like, okay, I'm going to keep a calendar. So I would do a mood calendar where I'm writing down my mood swings, feeling sad today, feeling angry today, feeling this today, and then connect it to my menstrual cycle. So I talked to my gynecologist and my psychiatrist. I'm like, guys, you two need to talk. Um, you need to have a conversation. And they refuse to have the conversation because, I mean, how can they keep charging me both if, yeah. if one of them fixes the problem, right? So they refuse to have the conversation, but huh. I insist. And I realize at some point, you know, I need to go get blood work done and see how my hormones are. And I go, and it turns out that I'm 32 years old and, uh, you know, at the beginning of menopause. My hormones are oh, so wow. fucked up that I'm – I haven't, you know, produced progesterone in who knows how long. And progesterone is, turns out, at least, and now I know in my experience, fundamental to emotional control to allow you to, like... Stability, okay. Stability. So yeah. I um, so I start with, they, you know, they say you have endometriosis. I go to um, a, a three or four different gynecologists. Uh, four of the, three of them, at least, suggest that I have a hysterectomy. They're like, you know, here's the problem. Endometriosis has no cure. I mean, the only cure is, you know, pregnancy or menopause. And so let's, what is it? So basically it's, so it is uterine lining growing in places where it's not supposed to grow. Okay. As far as I understand. And so basically. Too far up, too far down kind of thing. Yeah, or outside the uterus. Oh, no. Around the ovaries. I've heard that it could even grow around your heart. And okay. your other organs. Yeah. Let's so, not do and, that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Because it, it'll create internal bleeding, which is really painful. And so it, it creates really painful periods. A lot yeah. of women have these, have this apparently. Wow. Um, and a lot of the treatments, I think one of the most famous women that I know that has this is what's her name? Uh, Lena Dunham, right? So she had one of these very uh, aggressive treatments, which is she had a hysterectomy and had everything taken out. Um, but I, at, the, at that time, meet my wife, and my wife is, she is an Ayurvedic health practitioner, so she does a traditional Indian medicine, oh. uh, Indian from India. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so she's like, okay, let's try do something different. Let's not go for the hysterectomy. How about we try something different? 
uh, we talked to a gynecologist who's more into alternative medicine, and she suggests something that's allopathic, but that was a whole hell of a lot less aggressive than a hysterectomy, which was to put in a, um, a what do you call it? It's called an IUD. So it's an intrauterine device that releases progesterone. So she pops that in there. Very painful, but she pops that in there. And, um, and then... So she, she's the top in this situation, then. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There you go. And in parallel, my wife says, okay, now let's talk about why of all the places in your body, you're targeting your uterus. Like, could there be a connection between how you feel about being a woman and the fact that you have this, like, basically sort of like autoimmune thing going on with your, that your uterus is creating uterine lining outside of your uterus. It's like saying, hey, we got to fix this shit. So mm. could we approach the, you know, talk about what this means yeah. in emotional terms? And, you know, I, obviously I'm not a scientist, but I have spoken to a lot of women who are very masculine and a lot of them have endometriosis. So uh, just from anecdotal evidence, I can say that this is potentially a more widespread uh, issue. But mm. um, we, it wasn't like a, a, a an A to B process. It, you know, it, I... From there, I still went into a phase where I was like, yeah, I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to identify as non-binary and, you know, considering transition more than ever in my life. But because I was living in Los Angeles in Hollywood and it was just, I was, it was a culture that I was very steeped in. And this was, yeah. you know, four years ago, uh, before two, before 2016, before the, um, everything changed. And, um, and, but at this point it's, Two months ago, I went to the gynecologist because my wife and I are thinking about having children and I wanted to check out how everything it was. And I'm, you know, completely convinced that like I'm infertile, that this endometriosis has fucked up my ovaries, that like, you know, basically I've got just trash down there. And I get all the work done and my gynecologist is like, dude, you're good to have a baby tomorrow if you want it. You have no endometriosis. So I, so, you know, I was being told to have a hysterectomy to cure a problem that just the IUD by itself fixed Hmm. to the point that at 38 Hmm. years old, I'm like perfect to go and get pregnant if I wanted to, which I don't because I'm a hypochondriac, but if I wanted to, I could. Yeah. There's, I'm, my, my imagination is trying to like jump into this conversation. It seems like there's some sort of relationship with the feminine that it's a little off kilter with you. Like it started too early and then it almost ended too early. Like there was this imposition of the feminine, like it was a burden to you or something that was a big pressure in your life before you were ready for it. Um, and then there was a bunch of moves and I'm, I'm totally interpreting. I'm, I don't mean to be putting anything on you, but that the, there's a lot of moves with you relating to that. Where are you at now with like the feminine and your femininity and then your femaleness? I, so my wife just gave me a, a t-shirt that has pink on it and I still can't wear it. Okay. I still have, certain allergies to like (laughs) things that feel way too feminine for me but Hmm. i am but those are just like remnants of something that used to cause me a ton of anguish and now it causes me zero anguish Hmm. i am it, it i wouldn't i i would i think i could say that i you know that i am gender dysphoria no longer at least what i understood to be gender dysphoria 
which was dysphoria around my gender, um, it is no longer an issue at, at all in, in any way. Um, I It has allowed, in fact, vis- being able to see myself in my body, to know that this is the body that I am in, has allowed me to, you know, to do things that I thought that I would never be able to do. I vividly remember watching boys play basketball when I was little. And oh, I thought I we were going to do a standing to... peeing thing, but we went to basketball. <laughs> <laughs> um, I and I always and I always thought, you know, like, um, I wanted to be, I wanted to look like them when I was playing sports. Like, I wanted to be sleek and agile and. Just no all of these things that I attributed to, to male and to males, and then when I looked at myself in the mirror, what I saw was like, you know, short, fat, brown woman who looked clumsy, and so and so for hmm. the longest time, I thought of myself as clumsy and like incapable of, you know, doing certain things. I mean, last week I did my first, and this is probably, I mean, for people who do sports all the time, this is kind of silly, but I did my first full push-up, like no knees down, no girl style, like full push-up. Something that I thought that I was never going to be able to do. Because when I imagined myself and I saw myself doing things so perfectly, but then I saw myself in the mirror and I realized that I was imperfect, I believed myself to be so imperfect that it was impossible that I would ever be able to reach any, like even the, the, the bottom part of what how men were in that in that okay. sense. Yeah. I don't know well, if that makes sense. Did you ever see like your emotional strength, your sensitivity, let's say, as a power that men were uh, unable to catch up? Did you ever have like female supremacy in, in the direction of being very uh, sensitive, uh, keen on emotion, like you were talking about? Perceptive? I don't, yeah, I don't think so because, um, I mean, I've definitely experienced female supremacy. I mean, I was a, a, a self-declared feminist for many, many years and went deep into it and was very dismissive of may, of men and their experiences, but um, but but not my sensitivity. I think my sensitivity is something that I have just now, I'm, I'm just now coming to terms with and that I've actually, you know, numbed through drugs. I, I quit smoking weed four months ago after mm. smoking weed from nine, at least from nine to five, because I used to smoke all day for work, um, at least from nine to five for, for 15 years. So I am, you know, kind of like getting my, uh, actually feels great to be sober. Um, but I am getting uh, that new, uh, renewed awareness around my sensitivity and then feeling okay around vulnerability, which is something that I always saw as like negative and that I didn't, you know, that I didn't like about myself at all. Like I had a, when, when this friend that I was telling you that passed away, that kind of, you know, created a, a shift in my way of life. Um, you know, before she passed away, she would constantly tell me how much she loved me. And I have a very hard time saying, I love you back. Um, with my friends and I, and because it, it put me in a space of vulnerability that I wasn't comfortable with. And I've been like this ever since I was a young child. And now I'm like, today I told my friends, Hey, love you guys. You know, like I, Hmm. I think feel like now I'm, I'm better equipped to deal with my emotions because I'm no longer scared of them. And I don't longer feel that they are uh, a a defect. I don't see them as a defect anymore. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I 
that that's weird that that would be a defect, and yet you're a writer, which your job is kind of to get right into people's hearts. Isn't yeah. Kinda, no, I mean, weird. You're. I think. I think. But I've always. I've always. I've always thought that my forte is a writer because, funnily enough, I write shit that you know women don't usually write. I write action, for example. Oh, okay. That my forte was, um, you know, my use of visual descriptive language because I come from the visual arts. Um, mm. So I always thought that it was that, and I've actually been surprised when I can create these emotional moments. But it turns out, um, in that lack of self awareness that I've had because I've imagined myself as someone else, that you know that I actually am a writer that creates emotional connection, and, and that I can tap into into people's emotional states and and build things with that. It seems like there's been a lot of change for you in the last, I guess, four years, three years, six years, two years, and even the last few months. At the very beginning of the conversation, you said that you just kind of gave up social media, that you were very opinionated online. And then you just said just now that you used to be a real a big feminist, and now you're kind of something else now. You're outside of that. What happened? What's the relationship to you and your opinions? And how did how's that changed in the last few years? having an opinion, having an idea. Yeah. So I, I mean, I come from like a very, um, political household. My dad is a public figure who one week, yes. And one week, no is trending topic on Twitter here in Mexico. He's yeah, no, he's, he's a a twit star. He's loves it. Um, and you know, my sister is an activist and an actor. Uh, uh, most, you know, a lot of the members of my family are very much in the in the public eye, okay. um, and and very much so in a political sense. Um, my father, when I was born, my father was actually a spy, a double agent for the Central American um, guerrilla who was posing as a war correspondent in El Salvador. Which is why I said I have you know my first years, my first my early childhood is complex in the sense that like I you know I was in a war zone as a baby and my parents Uh thought I would not be aware of it but I think I probably was um and you know and so I for me and you know and my mom has been a staunch feminist my entire life and so for me it was kind of like you know going to political protests and like expressing my ideas was like it's just a way of life in in my family um my little sister when she was you know two years old would like march around the the backyard with a sign in her hands, you know, saying, you know, it was Los Pinos, which is the White House that killed whoever, right? So, um, you know, very politically oriented family, very much liberal, very much on the left. But I've always felt, I'd always felt different um, in the sense that there are some aspects of the way that I view life that would be considered perhaps more conservative. I'm just a heterodox thinker, in, in a context where there's a lot of not a lot of room for heterodoxy. Um, mm-hmm. So in 2016, um, after Trump won, I think it happened to you know a lot of people at the at the sim- at the same time. But I was coming from the Mexican context where I was used to you know presidential shifts being massive and putting kind of like my ability to continue to work in danger. And I thought that 
first of all, I thought that like I was going to be kicked out of the country, you know, because I'm like, uh, I had a, a, a green card and I was like, they're going to kick all the Mexicans out and I'm never going to be able to work again because lesbians won't be allowed. And I just all of these things, uh, I, 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 I was, you know, hysterical, basically. Um, and 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 I very caffeinated, and I don't usually drink coffee. And on that day, for some reason, I decided to have an espresso. And so I was like, in this anxiety attack, and I was like, I can't understand how a Latino could vote for Trump. It was, a, you know, in this need for everything to be black and white. And so I go on Facebook and I start looking for Latinos for Trump, and I start following them, and then they start making sense. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm oh sorry. shit. <laughs> Oh shit! Who am I? What am I turned into? Um, it's sort of the same. I start following kind of the same path in feminism, right? I'm like deep into liberal feminism, and then radical feminists start posting shit. I'm reading it, and I'm going, and I'm starting to ask questions. And I'm not just asking. And the thing is, I'm not just asking questions when it comes to the feminist question. Um, from a theoretical standpoint, it's not just for me. It's not theory. It's life. It's I am a person who is gender nonconforming and who has been gender dysphoric my entire life. Were I born ten years later, I would right now be living my life as a man. I have absolutely no doubt about that, and I would have very likely had surgeries that I would have come to regret, no doubt. Um, and so these are issues that are important to me. This is literally why I'm talking to you right now. Um, because I do feel I have a right to have a voice in this conversation. Um, and I started to say things and it got heated and I started to realize just, I, I think I had never really seen the culture wars for what they were. I was very comfortable sitting on the side that I was. And then when I saw myself kind of like, being moving from from one side to another, I was like, holy shit. And so it was taking up so much of my time and I was being consumed by the idea that, um, that I was, def this, this word gets a little esoteric, but that I was uh, defined somehow by my opinions. The same way that I used to think that I was defined by my, my sexual identity or my ethnic identity, like, you know, I'm Mexican American above all and I'm lesbian above all. Um, and, and there's no, there's no gray areas there. Um, I started to, you know, I'm a radical feminist and I'm a this and I'm a that. And it, I just, I, I started to see how all of my interactions became it's toxic with every, with everyone, because it was just, it was putting ideology before anything else. And it does, and that had never made sense to me. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I never fit in fully into my family. So why was I but doing that in my adult life in the way I interacted with the world. And so I decided to stop expressing my ideas publicly. So it was in part because of I was fearful that because I knew the potential consequences of expressing a controversial opinion, like maybe having some doubts about, you know, okay, we need to talk about Me Too and due process and how this, you know, what this means going forward as humans. Um, that expressing that opinion could get me into trouble to the point that perhaps, you know, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to find a job. Um, and in, in, in another part, just the personal aspect of it, of saying like, you know, I am not my thoughts. I am not my opinions. I've known myself to say one thing right now and three weeks later be like, oh shit, that's not true. You know, 
I'm very intellectually curious. That's a phenomenal so amount of uh, memory that you have. You're, you're outstripping most of us in the modern world. We can't remember what we were uh, believing in 10 days ago, let alone three weeks. Oh, man. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I guess that's the writer part in me, um, constantly writing my biography. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I just, you know, and so I said that it, it was at those two parts. But then as, as I have a tendency to do, because I was raised in that puritanical culture, I went too far and it got to the point where mm -hmm. I'm talking in therapy to my therapist about like, shit, now I can't, I don't have a voice. I can't voice my opinions ever, not even in, in you know, in like the personal context because I decided that I never wanted to voice my opinions, which is like literally why I reached out. This is the first time in ever since I got rid of my Twitter account that I'm talking to someone outside my social circle about what I think on subjects that I know are controversial. First time. Mm -hmm. Thank you for entrusting me with this re-debut. What's your relationship to the future? And has that changed? I mean, yeah, that in, in the sense that I, I first had the, I first believed that we were headed like in the right direction, in the direction of progress. And then I was like, no, wait, we're headed in the wrong direction. I mean, I heard, I think, it, I think she was, was she, ah, Jesus, the problem is I hear podcasts when I'm like falling asleep. And so I mix them all up. So correct me if I'm wrong. She might've been speaking to someone else, but I was oh, this woman who I think she calls herself like a post-feminist. And she was talking about how, you know, I'm not, she said something like, I'm not, you know, progress. I'm not even conservative because conservatives want progress, but really slowly. I consider myself a traditionalist because I actually want us to turn back because progress has fucked us up. Yeah. Um, I think so it, I don't it sounds like Mary Harrington. So there's in, in all of this uh, absent from what I've been uh, telling you, but not absent from the process is a spiritual process as well. Yeah. Right. So yeah. there's, and in that spiritual process, there is an acceptance of you know, shit that's going to happen is going to happen. There's not a lot I can do about it. It's happening for a reason. And I, rather than have it create all this anguish and anxiety in me, rather than suffer, I'm going to be a witness. And so my relationship right now to the future is that I'm a witness. And I just, I think the reason why I feel compelled to speak out in any case mm -hmm. is because I know that if I had heard I know that my experience isn't unique. I know that a lot of girls and women have had these same feelings and I know that I'm able to articulate them and that perhaps that if they, if someone hears them, then they'll feel less alone. And it's just mm. that. Okay. Oh, We're bad internet. Up again. Yeah. Bad, bad internet. Yeah. Sorry um, about that. No, Third world okay, internet but, here. Well, Hey, come on. You're second world. Come on. Um, and we're, we're, and we're, we're headed your direction. So, um, yeah, I was going to ask, uh, like, what would you want a girl out there stumbling upon this to, uh, to learn from you? And, and you said just not, you're not alone. That's a big help. When did you realize that you're not alone? Um, I think, you know, about six years ago. Huh. Well, six years ago, I think you're not alone. And I'm going to say something that I think is very, 
I guess, at least in my head, is very controversial, which is, you know, there's the possibility that you weren't born in the wrong body. What if being born in a body is in itself, like, the wrong thing? I mean, that, that's my thing. Like, why do I even have to deal with this freaking material world that's so slow and gummy? <laughs> filled with wasps and mosquitoes like that sucks that's stupid yeah no i i mean i i hear you and i think i have i have for some time lived there with you but the thing is that at least mm. from my you can't experience the present without a body yeah yeah and so living in your body but like living in it like actually being in it and allowing yourself to like take, you know, to live in every inch of skin, it allows you to be here and now. And that is the goddamn cure for anxiety. If anything, you know, mm. if there ever mm. was one. I, I second that actually, uh, a lot of my anxiety, uh, has been resolved in, uh, just remembering that I'm a physical creature. I'm not just some internet being, yeah. whatever that is. I mean, I can, I can do that for several hours a day and do it more or less successfully, but, like the realities there is actually a pretty good reality that I have uh, at least right now. Um, so are there projects that you're doing or are you toying with the idea of, Oh, you're writing this book. Yeah. So I'm writing this book, which uh, the title is No Estoy Loca, which means I'm not crazy. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, it's in Spanish. The book isn't, isn't in Spanish. I'm writing in English because it just comes easier to me. But, um, but the, the title is in Spanish because it's the lyrics to a song that was very popular in the nineties, uh, by this very, uh, um, this woman who, I mean, just on her own is, is ridiculous. The story around her, she was like accused of being part of a, a human trafficking ring, ended up in prison, a pop star accused of being part of a human trafficking ring, ended up in prison, got out of prison, was acquitted. And right now she's being attacked by feminists because she's uh, she sang some sort of like feminist, tried to put out a, a song that was meant to be a feminist anthem. Um, but they're saying, how dare she when she was involved in human trafficking 25 years ago when she was oh, 13. No. So anyway, this character that I love, she has this song that says, no estoy loca, estoy desesperada, which means I'm not crazy, I'm just desperate. And that's what the book is about, about not being crazy, but rather being desperate um, and hmm. and how the realization that I wasn't crazy um, and that I'm actually, you know, very uh, hmm. ordinary in my also because, you know, at this age now I've seen craziness. I have after after believing myself to be, a you know, good incredibly like oh my god i'm so tortured and like kind of buying into this thing where it's like it's cool to to not be mentally to have poor mental health yeah um, very very then, 90s california of you exactly there, exactly i then now have experienced you know with my friends who have like we were getting to that age where like yeah if you know with the drugs have affected us so i've seen like i've seen my friends um you know go completely psychotic and you know the, the aliens are trying to track me and they put a gps in my foot uh a, you know thanks to like drugs to crack specifically which makes you completely lose your shit and um and that you know led me to see that like no i'm not crazy i'm just someone who has had a hard time um regulating their emotions and there are organic 
parts of, to this, which, you know, the hormonal imbalance was definitely a part to it. There's a spiritual and there's an, and there's, and there's, a, a, a psychological aspect to it, but all of it is easily fixed. I'm a very ordinary person who can absolutely manage their emotions with given the right tools. Hmm. When is this book going to drop? If that's what books do. Don't. I don't know because I'm not done writing it yet. I'm in the process. I kind of, I decided to do this conversation with you because in part also because I figured it would help me to articulate more clearly what I want mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. But I'm, this, I'm, I'm in the process. Yeah. This has been really enjoyable. About 40 minutes in, it clicked in me. You remind me of a very close friend of me, like incredibly, you're, you guys are incredibly similar, like your facial structure, the glasses, the whole thing, oh, really? a, a lot of parts of your, uh, your history. <laughs> like, I'm like, Oh, I'm talking, I'm talking to Marissa. You have to send me a picture. You have to send me a picture. I will. Like, I want to share this podcast with her, but I, don't, I think it'll creep her out because you guys are so similar. That's incredible. Hmm. Um, I'm going to wrap up the conversation. Yeah. Thank you for joining me and my my audience thank you for having me i'm so glad that you decided that you decided to do this this was a lot of fun congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion if you enjoyed it do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff and do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well have a good night